Hallelujah. Father, in light of your perfections, as they're revealed to us in your word, portions of which that we have sung, we have sung even today, we confess that we fall immeasurably short of your glory. We, Lord, are lowly sinners. We are wicked and depraved of heart unless and until you invade and change us by a sovereign work of your Holy Spirit. For those who confess faith in Jesus Christ in this place, we remember that we have been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit and that you have transformed us, Lord. We have, you have caused us to be born again. You have resurrected us to newness of life in Christ Jesus. The old has gone and the new has come. In our salvation, we were made new creatures. And that which once defined us as enemies of the cross no longer is a label that we identify with anymore. But now we are pleased to be called your friends and your children. We have been grafted in, Lord, as once wild olive shoots into the vine, Jesus Christ. We have been adopted as sons and daughters once lost and without hope in this world into the family of God. We have been set upon our rock and foundation, our cornerstone, a tested stone, a sure foundation, Jesus Christ, once caught in the miry clay of sin. We have been resurrected unto newness of life from the death and depravity of what once owned our future, even in hell itself, because of the great atrocities that we committed against the thrice holy God. But now, Lord, in light of your glory, we confess that we in and of ourselves are unworthy of your presence unless you change us. And we thank you that your spirit has, as it were, touched a coal to the lips of every believer in this room and done a sanctifying work. We thank you that you have done this through the shed blood of Jesus Christ applied to our sins so that a sufficient price was paid on Calvary's tree. We also pray, Lord, by the proclamation of these truths, if there are any lost within the hearing of this message today, that they would be moved to cry out, Woe is me, in light of the righteousness and perfections of the God who was and is and is to come and has revealed himself in all creation and in his holy word, and that they would bow the knee before your authority and lordship, confess their sins, and place faith in your Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the incarnate one, the only salvation, the only solution for the plight of mankind. Now, as we turn to your scriptures, open our eyes to understand with more depth and clarity and open our mouth to proclaim more boldly the glorious truths of the gospel and help us to contend in a day when it is challenged for the faith, for the faith once for all delivered to the saints and all that you might be glorified and your church equipped. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning we turn to the scriptures in Psalm chapter 103. Would you turn there with me if you would? Let me introduce this message and in a moment I'll ask you to stand once again out of reverence for the reading of God's word. Today our message comes to us under the title Waging War or War on Forgetfulness. David declares war on the tendency of his soul to marginalize, ignore, belittle, take lightly. Sometimes as the phrase goes, familiarity might breed contempt. He wages war on forgetfulness, and he returns to the very grounding of his soul's hope in the promise of the Messiah, and he commands the attention of his cognitive faculties to bow before the Lord his God. Lord, as it appears throughout this psalm, is all in uppercase letters, L-O-R-D, which is the translation of that high and hallowed covenant name, the all-sufficient one, the I Am, namely Yahweh himself. This is the God revealed to us in David's psalm, the God that he forces himself, he commands himself to remember his holy works. 
Therefore, the aim of this morning's message is to move our souls, like David's soul was moved, to worship, to move our souls to worship by proclaiming the glories revealed, the glories of God revealed in Psalm 103. The aim of this morning's message, again, is to move our souls to worship the Lord by proclaiming the glories revealed to us in Psalm 103. Would you stand once again out of reverence for God's Word according to the pattern given to us in Nehemiah chapter 9, where the people of God stood for a quarter of the day as the Word of God was read? won't take us a quarter of the day, but as we hear these 22 verses, pay attention. This is the authoritative Word of God. Psalm 103, verse 1 of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. Verse 17, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting, on those who fear Him, and His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep His covenant and remember to do His commandments. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. Verse 20, Bless the Lord, O you His angels, you mighty ones who do His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all His hosts, His ministers who do His will. Bless the Lord, all His works, in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Psalm 103, written by David, the great, 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 and so on, grandfather of the son of David, who would satisfy the conditions necessary to ultimately fulfill its messianic hope. Psalm 103 is a Davidic psalm, rich with messianic hope and assurance. This song introduces to us a set of four songs, 103, 104, 105, 106, which share themes from creation all the way through the era of the exile as they illustrate the relationship of the Lord to His people. These four psalms are dedicated to unfolding, revealing the relationship of the covenant-keeping God to the covenanted, if you will the relationship of Yahweh to His people. Psalm 103 and 104, as we mentioned at the introduction of our service, share opening and closing refrains. Both psalms instruct the singer himself to direct his admiration, 
his affections and worship to the Lord, that is, to Yahweh, with this command to his own soul, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Psalm 103 then proceeds with a catalog of reasons. It is indeed rational worship. It, is, it makes sense that you would worship the Lord your God. Only a fool would deny Him worship when we consider the following, so to speak. And under this catalog of reasons for praise, David documents with poetic beauty and symmetry the benefits of the Lord extending to His children. Note verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Why? For what reason? Because of all His benefits. What are His benefits? Well, the rest of the psalm outlines many of them, and they will form the structure of this message today. The praiseworthy glories of God multiply in the memory of David as he sings, overwhelming, and they, these glories, this recounting of the Lord's, of, of reasons to worship the Lord, the Lord's, Lord's mighty acts through history, they overwhelm the author. They overwhelm David with the immeasurable worth of his Lord, and they eventually move him toward the close of his song to call on all the hosts of creation, if you will. Heaven, earth, and the works of the Lord are called to join him in jubilant adoration. This concept of returning in your memory to the works of the Lord corresponds, does it not, with our Genesis series. Why did Abraham build an altar? Why did Isaac, Jacob, and so forth, the patriarchs, have those moments, those liturgies, those ceremonies, and even physical geographic places to point their attention to and the, the attention of generations to come? It was the same principle illustrated in Psalm 103, to not forget the benefits, if you will, of the Lord, so that they would appraise Him in their generation and their children's children, verse 17, Psalm 103, would see that altar and be mindful that their soul ought to bless the Lord because of all that He has done for His own. The crescendo of worship builds through the course of Psalm 103, multiplying reasons for worship upon reasons for worship until more and more voices join Him, so to speak, in the end. Psalm 103, in this way, parallels the great arc of history in its structure. We begin with just a person or a few people who are believers at the very beginning of the account in Genesis. Abel offers an acceptable sacrifice to the Lord, signifying his faith, as Hebrews 11 tells us. But Abel would be joined, his blood would cry out for justice, and his legacy would be followed by other believers. And the line of uh, Seth, and the line of Shem, and the line of the Messiah, and those called out in the calling of Abraham, and his lineage, and those who are children of Abraham, even now grafted in, join them, so that the ark of history provides more and more voices from across the ages, from across the peoples of the earth, from across the geographic regions, until we see the prophecies of Revelation coming to pass, yes, even in our day from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, the Lord is multiplying voices to give Him worship. Have you joined them today? Are you joining with the voices across history through the record of redemptive revelation? Have you joined with the voices of the hosts of heaven announcing Christ's birth? Have you joined with the seraphim that we see in Isaiah's temple vision who cry, Holy, 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 have you joined them in directing your soul to bless the Lord? And have you done so motivated by drawing your attention to His great works? This is the purpose of Psalm 103. 
So as these voices are multiplied through the ages, it reaches the incarnation, the revelation of the Son of God, the Son of David, Jesus Christ Himself, and then the gospel sickle goes forth with all the more zeal, reaping an international harvest unto the culmination of all covenant history. And this is pictured in the glorious crescendo of worship in Revelation, the book of Revelation chapter 7 and chapter 14, where the voices of all of these that I've mentioned join like a great waterfall in offering praise to the Lord. Men and angels join in forever praise of the, of the Lamb who was slain for the redeemed. Now, in addition to this, Psalm 103 is more magnificent still. It is structured with a kind of mirror symmetry which directs the focus of our attention to its epicenter in verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. And verse 12 continues, As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. These two verses encapsulate and summarize the theme of these four songs so well. Here is the great theme of this section of the Psalter encapsulated in David. As David pairs, that is, he sets against one another the greatness of the Lord with his work and its covenantal application to the redeemed. The greatness of the Lord's work and its application to his own, his children, the redeemed, his people, especially considering the desperate situation of their sin. This psalm begs us to ask the question, how could we ever forget such high and holy essential truths to which we owe our eternal destiny, the hope of heaven, communion with our Father, presence in, uh, uh, joining in the presence of our holy God? How could we ever forget such high and holy truths? How tragic to so often neglect so great a salvation. Therefore, David declares war on forgetfulness, recognizing this tragedy, yea, atrocity of becoming blind or familiar or ignoring or treating small or insignificant or neglecting the worship of his great God. He commands his soul to bless the Lord. And can you hear that command coming forth through the pages to you today? You must bless the Lord. It is your duty. It's the least you can do, O believer, in light of what he's done for you. David does this by recounting the mercies and glories of God extended to the, elect, to the elect so that we may not forget the following. The Lord has been good to us. How has the Lord been good to us? That's basically the structure of my message for you today. Here's a heading. Benefits of the Lord manifest and magnified through the following. So manifest means magno, made known. Magnified means to be broadcast more loudly, so we pay attention. Benefits of the Lord, manifest and magnified through four major points. Number one, Yahweh, our Lord's redemptive acts. The moving of heaven and earth in order to redeem his own. How, is the benefit, how are the benefits of the Lord manifest and magnified by his redemptive acts? Verses 1 through 7 explain as much. And the second point. The benefits of the Lord manifest and magnified through Yahweh's forgiving capacity. How uh, forgiving is our Lord? How great is His mercy towards us? Verses 8 through 13 expound on that concept. And then point three, benefits of the Lord manifest and magnified given the frailty of our lives. That's verses 14 through 18. And then we'll close with 19 through 22 and a cosmic or it's kind of a 
a fun word I like, but you can substitute universal. A universal or cosmic call to worship. So these are the major points today. Let us follow as we dig into God's holy word in Psalm 103 to realize the manifold reasons to glorify our God so that we might declare war on our own soul's forgetfulness and turn and bless His holy name. Benefits of the Lord manifest and magnified through Yahweh's redemptive acts. Verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. David unfolds in the reasons that follow compelling compelling reasons to vow, to make a commitment to worship the Lord, to orient oneself, to make an absolute determination that I will bless the Lord. Realizing the great mercies of our God, His acts in redemption, the fact that God became a man and dwelt among us, that Emmanuel, the message of the prophets, was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, could even happen and then was revealed in history when Jesus stepped from his glorious pre-incarnate existence into the womb, fully God still, yet taking on full humanity of a virgin. The fact that this is a reality of God's redemptive plan compels us to glorify the Lord and to bless him. Not with just one category of our thought, our private life reserved for worship, the world might say. Not just the culturally acceptable pleasant nod to the traditions of our religious founding, the world might say no, but with all that is within us. Yahweh's, the Lord's, redemptive acts demand, compel personal worship vows of every aspect of our being. David says as much, let the percentage of our souls be dedicated to the admiration of the Lord proportional to His glories. So the percentage of our soul is dedicated to the admiration of the Lord. Is it proportional to His glory? Does that question make sense? In light of how amazing God is, how much of our mind ought to be trained on Him? In light of how amazing our Lord is, how much of our will ought to be determined to follow in His footsteps and in His commands? In light of how glorious His manifest work is in redemption, how much of our affections, desires, ambitions ought to be compelled? To say anything less than 100% is to utter blasphemy, which, if you're in my shoes today, means there's room for growth. Welcome to sanctification. But we need means for sanctification, and Psalm 103 gives it. Declare war on your tendency to forget by remembering the great glories of our God. A complete reorientation of our cognitive faculties, our mental landscape is appropriate in light of God's word and God's amazing and the amazing truths of what he has done. Think about it. What does it mean to bless the Lord with all that is within you? Well, certainly this list would apply. To bless the Lord with all that is within you is to bless the Lord with your worldview, your whole worldview. To bless the Lord with your emotions. To bless the Lord, that is to worship him with your relationships, with your ambitions, with your desires, with your conscience, with your judgments, with your opinions, with your imaginations, with your affections, with your memories, with your thoughts, with your hopes, your philosophies, your sentiments, your expressions of artwork, your traditions, etc. Uh, yesterday, um, one of my boys and I were just having a little conversation, and I exhorted my son. I said, it is important now, during this time of your life, to embrace certain things by cultural expression that glorify the Lord. 
Why? Because they will be tied to your coming-of-age experience. Things that you did in your teens as you were becoming a young man or a young woman tend to stick with you. Nursing, home rings, nursing homes ring often with the songs of the coming-of-age experience of its residents, which sounds a little bit weird in the future when we imagine what songs and how explicit the lyrics might be someday when old folks' homes are populated by those whose affections were wasted on such trivial junk. So what's the admonition? Honor the Lord, bless the Lord with all that is within you. So those cultural expressions of those things that make you smile when you hear them or sing along when they're on the radio, do they glorify the Lord? That's the question, a question among many by which we could apply Psalm 103. I gave you a short list, even though it might have sounded long, I'm sure you could add more categories. Yahweh's redemptive acts demand, compel, personal worship vows to dedicate by increasing, sanctifying process the totality of our inner being as a tool of worship unto Him. Now, David is quick to add reasons. He says in verse 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. What are His benefits? Well, he lists three right away that fall into the redemptive category. These are His atoning work, forgiveness, healing, and redemption. Verses 3 and 4, what are the benefits of Yahweh? David lists three right away. He says, who, speaking of his Lord, forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit. Those are three reasons, three redemptive acts, if you will, or categories of God's work in history which demand, compel our personal worship vows, forgiveness, healing, and redemption. Last week, we touched upon Isaiah 28, and we cross-referenced it because it was a message of judgment. Basically, the uh, prophet was saying, if you don't hear my word from my prophet, you will hear my word the hard way, and it will come as a scourge and a whip, line upon line, precept upon precept. And there will come a time in rebellious unrepentance, the prophet says to the people, that you will hear the word of God, but you will hear it in the form of lashes, if you will, and it will have a painful effect. And we ask the question, how might we be free from the lashes of God's judgmental proclamation over us? How might we be free from the whip that comes down on his day of reckoning? And the answer, of course, is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Jesus Christ is revealed in Isaiah 53 as the one who forgives our iniquities. But how does he do it? Well, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. His back bore the lashes that paid for our forgiveness. These are the benefits, if you will. The great mercies, the redemptive acts of our Lord. He, through his son Jesus Christ, is the one who forgives your iniquities. He, through Jesus Christ, is the one who heals your diseases. He is the one who redeems your life from the pit. All of these categories are telling ones. They speak of the reality of the fall. After the fall, sin, sickness, death, sorrow, hell, and man's destiny in his future entered into our experience. Thus, in order to be ransomed, we need forgiveness. In order to be drawn up from the pit of a post-fall reality, we need to be healed of our diseases chiefly of the soul, but also diseases that affect our whole experience. And so in the new heavens and new earth with our resurrected body one day, that will be fulfilled in its ultimate sense. He will heal us from all our diseases. 
And to accomplish his will in the meantime, he will provisionally, provisionally heal us of our diseases on the way that we might follow him according to the steps that he's laid out beforehand that we should walk in. And furthermore, he redeems our life from the pit. We don't stay like Joseph condemned to slavery in the pit, but the Lord redeems us. And in that picture, we see Joseph rising out of that condemnation unto ruling and reigning on God's behalf. Think of other pit uh, examples or pictures that could serve as illustrations in Scripture. Jeremiah was cast into a pit by the tyrannical powers that be, but God lifted him out. Why? Because his word is more powerful than the unjust ruling of a pagan authority. Think of the pit in Daniel's experience. Similarly, he was cast into a den of lions, but he was redeemed from that pit, if you will, because even though he took a chance in a pagan and hostile environment, in a government that didn't share his convictions to proclaim the truth, God nevertheless redeemed him from the pit. And, no, and more than this, God redeemed Daniel in his confession and faith in the coming Messiah from the pit of his sins, from the destruction that he deserved. And as David now remembers this, he remembers his own pit, does he not? Likely written later in life, David recalls how God has saved him from the destruction he deserved for being an adulterer, a murderer, and a liar, abusing his authority in the Bathsheba affair. Nevertheless, in spite of David's great atrocities and sins, corruption and depravity, evident in that act, he realized that Yahweh is a God who forgives all of his iniquities, heals all of his diseases, and redeems his life from the pit. You see, the benefits of the Lord are manifest and magnified through Yahweh's redemptive acts. He commands our personal worship. He owns exclusively the rights to our admiration because He forgives us, because He heals us, and because He redeems us. Notice in Matthew chapter 4, 23, I don't have time to turn there, but when Jesus is fulfilling the prophecies of old, note how He manifests His authority and the fulfillment of Isaiah's words in what he does. He proclaims the message of, of the kingdom in forgiveness of sins, and he heals all he comes in contact with from their many diseases. In doing so, he represents the authority, the role, and the ministry of the Messiah. Now through him, sins could be atoned and forgiven. Now through him, a resurrection of the body one day will follow the pattern of that which Lazarus prefigured. God's word came through the Son, and God's work accomplished through the Son calls forth, Rise, Lazarus. Substitute your own name there. Rise, and you will join him from the grave one day at the second resurrection. So our Lord, Yahweh, forgives, heals, and redeems. Now with resurrection, we recognize not just his atoning work, but also his glorifying work. And there are three references, at least a few more perhaps, that David multiplies in recounting, again, the benefits of our God. Not only does he forgive, heal, and redeem, but 4b says, he crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. You see, now we've moved from atonement into glorification, sanctification, you could say as well. The Lord crowns you, that is, he presents to you dignity in his steadfast love and mercy. He lifts you up from the quagmire of your decrepit state to rule and reign with him, beside him, even at his right hand. To serve as a co-regent, that is, to rule along his side, to share in his dignity and glory. Why? Because his blood is just that powerful. Verse 5, who satisfies you with good 
The Lord provides for His own lavishly in many cases, certainly with respect to eternal life. Christ, as we've studied recently, as abundant life in His body and blood at the Lord's table last week, we recognize that He was the one prefigured in the wilderness when manna came, and now, by His broken body, we have the promise of eternal life. And He is the picture of that shed blood unto the saving of the soul through His work on Calvary. We have the hope of our sins forgiven. It is He who satisfies you, saint, with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. And the eagle is a symbol of transcendent strength. You might ask the question, can you think of a stronger bird that can fly higher than an eagle? Can you think of a stronger bird that can fly as high as an eagle? There may be one, but poetically, that's what an eagle symbolizes, strength and ability to rise. In the uh, Exodus account, there is a promise that, or there is a confession that the Lord Yahweh bore his children up on eagles' wings in spite of the fact that they had come out of slavery, that they were in a desert, that the journey was long, and they only had one pair of shoes. God in his sovereignty provided for them along the way as if bearing them up, bearing them up as if on eagles' wings. And thus, this transcendent strength is the promise in this poetic picture of the Lord's work on your behalf. One day, He will grant you wings to fly above the failures and the frailty of this world, this life, and this reality condemned and colored by the fall and sin. And those eagles' wings will lift you from the grave, and they will usher you into the new heavens and new earth perfect and forever communion, joining all the hosts of heaven and the saints have gone before and the saints yet to be born and that glorious event that commences with the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the benefits of the Lord, manifest and magnified. These are His redemptive works, forgiveness, healing, redemption, crowning, satisfying, and renewing you. And furthermore, verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. Yahweh's redemptive acts include His glorifying work that goes from crowning to satisfaction to renewing us, to revealing His works, working on our behalf, revealing His ways and His acts to Moses by His holy word. The Lord is the perfect judge over all of history. And the final day of judgment will bear this out. Even as we make our appeal to Him provisionally, in the meantime, nevertheless, we know the perfect day of reckoning will come. Why? Because the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. And He made this known, did He not? His ways to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. And if you want to wage war on forgetfulness, if you want to wage war on a soul that is distracted, deluded, frightened, and whatever, battling all kinds of idolatrous pursuits, wayward thinking, corrupt confusion, and so forth. If you want to wage war on that, think about the Lord's great redemptive acts. This is a reason, a major reason why we're gathered in this place today. That We gather in the Lord's house weekly so we can recount to our soul's benefit the Lord's manifest and magnified work through His redemptive acts. That's why the gospel is proclaimed each and every week from this pulpit. Second major point, benefits of the Lord manifest and magnified not only through Yahweh's redemptive acts, verses 1 through 7, but Yahweh's forgiving capacity. How great is His mercy and grace, verses 8 through 13. 
Verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. Now, there is a signal revelation, if you will, a signal revelation. An important milestone of God's redemptive purposes that is given on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34, 6. Mark it down. We've referenced it many times recently. Why? Because the Word of God points to that moment as a fixture. And here the author, David, quotes from that revelation to Moses on the mountain. In other words, when verse 7 says, what a, uh, He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel, a summary of His revelation is then quoted or referenced in verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. This is almost a quote from, again, uh, Exodus 34, 6, where the Lord reveals Himself as merciful and gracious in the giving of His law in this signal revelation to Moses on Sinai. But David goes on to say in verse 10 how this is possible. He says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. I should say he implies how this is possible. Again, verse 10, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. So how can this be the case? And In other words, how can God be merciful and just at the same time when we are so sin-ridden and He is so perfect? To allow us in His presence would be to corrupt the environment that should be reserved for His holiness and His holiness alone. In other words, in order for God to be just and holy, must He not deal with our sins, deal with us according to our sins? Well, ordinarily, yes. There is only one way to escape the Lord dealing with you according to your sins. I'll mention that in a moment, but let me ask you, kids, if you pay for your own sins, what happens? Young people in the room, if you pay for your own sins, what happens? You die, and then what? If you pay for your own sins, what happens? Anyone know? No, if you pay for your own sins, little trick question, you go to hell, that is correct. In other words, the cost of your own sin, born upon your own shoulders, is condemnation to God's judgment and hell itself. If God deals with you according to your sins, you will spend eternity suffering justly because of your infraction, your transgressions, your iniquity, and your sins against the holy God. But in this case, we find in His mercy and His grace, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. How does God deal with us in this way? In Matthew 26, 39, the answer comes. Turn there with me if you would. Matthew 26, 39. David is uh, preaching, he's proclaiming, he's singing and prophesying of the Son of David to come. And the Son of David to come would allow this verse of God not dealing with us, with us according to our own sins to be a reality. And there are many moments that you could point to that demonstrate this, but this is a powerful one in Matthew 26, 39. And here we have Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then he said to them in 38, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Why is Jesus so troubled? And why does he face death with this weight coming upon him? Because the Lord is about to deal with Jesus for your sins, if you are a believer. He says, Remain here and watch with me. 
And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What was the cup that Jesus was talking about? Becoming sin on your account and bearing the wrath of God on Calvary's tree, on the cross, in your place. That is correct. In this instance, Jesus was fulfilling what was necessary for Psalm 103.10 to be a reality. God does not deal with us according to our sins because he dealt with our sins on Jesus Christ. When Jesus took the cup of God's wrath on Calvary, he was fulfilling with the sacrificial system, the lambs that were slain, the innumerable sacrifices that were offered in the Old Testament. He was fulfilling what they pictured. He would not repay us according to our iniquities because the cost of our sin's debt would fall upon another. This is the substance of Yahweh, of God's forgiving ability. He can forgive you all your sins because all the judgment you deserved was taken on Jesus Christ, our Lord. What David is celebrating in Psalm 103.10 is the benefits of sacrifice. The substitute sacrifice, the death of another in our place, the suffering of a Paschal or Passover or substitute lamb in our stead. The cup of divine wrath was ingested by the son of David. He is the lamb of God as the Passover sacrifice, as the substitute one who would die in our place. Allowed for God's forgiving capacity to extend to your sins and to mine if you are in him today. How great is Yahweh's mercy. How great is our Lord's grace unto us. David goes on to illustrate this in three ways. There's three scope illustrations, or three illustrations to uh, reveal the scope of his forgiveness, his forgiving ability, if you will. The first one is in verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Again, as high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how much the Lord loves you. Kids, have you ever uh, gone up to your mom or your dad and said, I love you this much? And your mom or your dad stretches out their arms a little more and they're, I love you this much. And that illustration makes us smile. Why? Because there's kind of a category difference there. It's hard to communicate how much your mommy or daddy who loves you, uh, how much they love you just by stretching out their arms. Uh, this is actually an analogy that is used here as well in verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. There is that powerful, overwhelming sense of love that every godly parent knows, and in some cases, is naturally the case as well in God's common grace. There's this love that overflows from a parent. You see that little child coming to you, saying their first words, taking their first steps, um, almost in danger. And it triggers something in you, a kind of compassion that can't be quantified by ordinary metrics. And you jump in and you extend that unconditional love, rescuing your child or consoling them with a huge hug and cuddling them and giving them a reason to uh, be freed from their fears once again. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So how great is our Lord's forgiving capacity? Well, if you could measure how far the heavens are above the earth, then you could measure his forgiveness towards us. If you could measure how far the east is from the west, then you would know how great his love is toward you. 
Or if you could weigh on a scale how much your father, your mother, your godly parent loves you, then you could weigh and measure the love of God. This is kind of the idea. So kids, imagine a tape measure. Raise your hand if you see the tape measure. You guys know what it's for? Yeah, so if you want to know how long a board is, you put the one end on one side of the board and you stretch it all the way out. Sure enough, eight feet, right? 96 inches. Now let's say I gave you a project. Let's say I had George and Theo and I said, George, you take this end of the tape measure and you fly straight into space heading west. And then Theo, I want you to take the other end of the tape measure and you fly straight into space heading east. Would that tape measure work to measure how far the east is from the west? No. Has there ever been a tape measure or will there ever be a tape measure manufactured that is up to that task? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) No, I'd say it's impossible. Practically impossible. And this is the point. It is practically impossible. By the tangible means that we have, we simply don't have categories to comprehend how great God's love in Jesus Christ is for you and me. How great and precious the sacrifice of Calvary truly was. Could you put a monetary value on the precious blood of Jesus Christ that was pictured at the Lord's table last week? The answer is no. It defies ordinary categories of understanding and measurement. We don't have the tangible capacity in our finite minds and our human experience to judge, to weigh, to measure Yahweh, the Lord's forgiving capacity. So... In light of these benefits, what should we do? Bless the Lord, O your soul, and forget not all his benefits. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, in light of how great his love is toward us in Christ. Point three, benefits of the Lord manifest and magnified through Yahweh's redemptive acts. Number two, Yahweh's forgiving capacity. Number three, the frailty of life. And this is a point that's made primarily by contrast. We understand in part how great the Lord is when we consider how frail we are. Verse 14, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over it and it is gone and his place knows it no more. In verses 14 through 18, we see this contrast of the frailty of our humanity, the nature of man, with the nature of God. Any shortfall in our worship is due to forgetting, not taking seriously, how glorious God is in a category distinct from His creation, and how frail and weak we are by comparison. Doesn't this explain Isaiah's reaction in the temple vision? We sang that song, the last one in our worship, that commemorates that moment, Isaiah 9, 1 through 6, 1 through 7. We also read it as our worship text, right? So the veil of Revelation is opened a bit. And Isaiah sees how the glories of God, he describes as this train filling the temple. And and then there's these beings, a seraphim, creations, uh, creatures specifically dedicated with this particular orientation of even their bodily forms and so forth, the wings and so on, to echo forever and without end the praises, to magnify, to ascribe to the Lord the glories, crying, holy, 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 do his name. So Isaiah sees this, and naturally, what does he think? This has been going on in the heavenlies in God's presence all the while, and I, a stupid, oblivious sinner, blind and deaf and lost in my transgressions and sin, didn't even realize it. 
Every creature who walks this earth, every human being who does not realize that beyond the veil of this finitude do our sin is a thrice holy God who is worshipped forever and without end by these glorious hosts of heaven. Boy, we are blind. And just because we can't see it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It does exist. It is more real than you are if it could be said. But when your eyes are opened, you realize, what a fool I've been. I should have been praising the Lord my whole life long. My next breath is owed to him. What are we? We are dust. Do you think the Lord forgets that you're but dust? What does it say in Genesis 2-7? That Adam became a living thing when? Uh, kids, another question for you. So Adam was made out of what? God made Adam out of what? Dust. dust. Now Evan, or, or I'm sorry, Evan. Uh, Adam became alive when? When did Adam became alive? God did something. You remember what God did? That's right. He breathed into that dust. Okay. So this says, materially speaking, we are nothing but dust, the sum of our atoms, okay, this material matter. But what makes the difference between a bunch of atoms on the floor and you and me? It is the breath of God. And we forget that. Do you think God does? No. God never forgets. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Shame on us, if you will, because we forget this fact, that if God removed his breath from us, so to speak, his ability to uphold us in our corporeal frame, his ability to uphold this entire universe by the word of his power, according to Colossians 1, if he were to remove that life-sustaining force of his direct involvement with his creation for even a split second or a moment, we'd be absolutely obliterated. There'd be nothing left. So we see, when contrasted with our nature versus his, all the more reason to praise him. Because we are dependent on his ruach, wind, breath, spirit, imbued ability, capacity to bless or to do anything, we ought to use that breath to do what? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Every breath within my lungs really ought to be dedicated to praise his holy name. Now, David uses three frailty references. Three comes up a lot, doesn't it? We just talk about three illustrations to demonstrate the scope of how great his forgiveness is. Now he uses three references to show how temporary we are. The first is dust. We mentioned that already. Verse 14, he remembers that we are dust. We are temporary. We are frail. We are mere material without him. Uh, that is the substance of our being unless and, uh, um, and, or, or if he were to remove his spirit from us and so forth. And then verse 15, as for man, his days are like grass. So dust, now we have man compared to grass. And then thirdly, he flourishes like a flower of the field. There's a third reference, flower. And then he says in verse 16, for the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. Um, has anyone noticed the wind the last few days? Really strong, right? So let's say you're at the beach and that wind kicks up to about 20 or 30 miles an hour. What happens to that light layer of sand, kids, right on, on the beach? What happens to it? Yeah, it's whipped up and just blown. That was happening to me on the job all week. I had to keep my safety glasses on because the dust of the yard was just blowing in the wind. Now, there are certain winds that, are, that blow so hot and they're so pernicious, they're so devastating that it can cause all the life to be drained out of areas of California. We've seen this in recent years. All of a sudden, the newsreels are lit with fires, right? This is due to, in many cases, the Santa Ana winds, they're called. These winds are to be feared because they can dry everything out so quickly that immediately all that underbrush is susceptible to fire and it can catch flame. And what, what, what's, what was once a beautiful hillside with trees and flowers and people would have 
great houses and homes in these hills outside of these areas can be destroyed in a matter of moments. Why? Because we are like dust, grass and flower. And the wind actually is a more powerful force in many cases than these things. And this is a picture that David uses to show how frail we are. Is there a way to escape the wind of God's judgments when they blow hot in a once thriving society that now his patience has endured just so long and he is bringing his day of retribution? There is a way to escape. But if you find your sustenance in life by being planted somewhere other than the rock, Jesus Christ, according to Isaiah 28, you will be susceptible to the wind of God's judgment. You will be blown like dust. You'll be dried out like grass. You'll be trampled like a flower. You'll be burned like the fires following the winds of Santa Anna. You see, if God has any plans for us, they happen and we are preserved because of His sovereign grace. We, left to our own selves, our own devices, and our best laid plans, prove in the end to be nothing but dust, grass, and flowers. We may grow and be vibrant and colorful for a season, but as soon as the wind passes over it, so speak, we are gone, and that place knows us no more. Verse 17, though, by contrast, we see this. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him, and His righteousness to children's children. Where is the source of everlasting life? Where can what would otherwise be mere dust, grass, and a flower of the field be rooted and grounded with that which will sustain him? It's in Jesus Christ. No wonder that Jesus said to the woman at the well, I am streams of living water unto eternal life. If you drink from me, so to speak, you will never thirst again. No wonder Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Because in God's word and through his word incarnate made flesh, Jesus Christ is the true source of eternal life. Herein is God's steadfast love revealed, and this source of life is stronger than the grave. It's stronger than the winds of God's judgment because our judgment was taken on the back of another Thus, Jesus Christ is, in His work, our steadfast love and preserves us from everlasting to everlasting. And this frailty of life closes this section 14 through 18 with not just three references to our frailty, but three attributes of the redeemed. And this will move us to application as we begin to bring this message to a close. But I want you to know this. Uh, let me answer this question from our text. Who may be consoled by this psalm? you ever heard people say, I love the Psalms, they're so devotional. Um, usually when people say that, they're talking about their favorite two or three, maybe five Psalms, right? Psalm 23, everybody loves that one, because they picture themselves as a sheep being cuddled in the arms of the good shepherd. And there, of course, is room for that imagery within the Psalter. But one thing you should have learned by now, and pounded into your skull ad nauseum after 103 plus messages, that the Psalms are a lot more than cuddly promises. The Psalms give us a revelation of God's justice over and over again. The Psalms are full of the full range and capacity of His revelation of His nature, character, and attributes. And if you read the Psalms for what they have to say, then it ought to move you to fear Him. Who may be consoled by this Psalm? Not somebody who's looking for a reason to be cuddled and remain in their sins and imagine themselves in safekeeping without repenting. No, those who deserve to be consoled by Psalm 103 are those who fear Him. Verse 17, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who 
fear him. Who else may be consoled by Psalm 103? Says his righteousness to their children's children in verse 18, to those who what? Keep his covenant. And number three, those who may be consoled rightly by Psalm 103 and remember to do his commandments. These, brothers and sisters, are fruit measurements, are they not? These are attributes of the redeemed. Those who fear him, those who keep his covenant, those who do his commandments, they may be consoled by Psalm 103. They can be reassured that his steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting. Now, recognize that this is a measure of who, not a measure of grounding. In other words, you aren't saved because you fear the Lord, but when you're saved, you better believe you fear him. You aren't saved because you keep his covenant, but when you're saved, you better believe you are moved ever more so to keep his covenant. You aren't saved because you do his commandments, but you better believe fruit of salvation is walking increasingly in obedience to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so if there is any consolation to be found in Psalm 103, it's found in those who return to meditate on and to be mindful of the benefits of our Lord, manifest and magnified in His redemptive acts and His forgiving capacity, recognizing the frailty of their life, and then they change accordingly. They have a higher view of Him. They take more seriously His Word. They confess their sin more readily. They feel sorry for transgressing Him more and more. They recognize that His Word is a standard and authority. It will not be and cannot be twisted, withered, or shaken. It stands forever when the breath of His wind blows and all flesh fails and fades like grass of the field. You better believe that people who take seriously Psalm 103 following the footsteps of David turn from their adultery, so to speak, in his case, turn from their murderous heart and intentions and lying and bearing false witness, and they find refuge in his safety and his mercy by his covenant. Because one has died in my place, the covenant of my salvation is sealed in him. So in Jesus Christ, the son of David, my covenant head, I have hope of steadfast love from everlasting to everlasting. And so obedience is a huge part of the gospel message. Now that you are saved, walk in a manner worthy of your call, Paul says in the second portion of the book of Ephesians. And so Jesus says, you'll know them by their fruits. And who are those that love him? Those, in fact, who do keep his commandments. And thus Psalm 103, 18 is reiterated in the whole testimony, the whole counsel of Scripture. Finally, the benefits of the Lord manifest and magnified. We see this morning, not only in God's redemptive acts, the Lord Yahweh's forgiving capacity, contrasted with the frailty of our lives, but we see his benefits magnified in this cosmic call to worship. The Lord is so mighty. He is so incredible. He is so gracious. He is so loving to us that we ought to worship him. Yes, bless the Lord, O my soul, but more ought to join in that chorus of praise. The Lord has established his throne, verse 19, in the heavens. His kingdom rules over all. So to the extent of his rule, let all the subjects, all his subjects acknowledge his authority, right? Verse 20, bless the Lord, O you, his angels. They would be under his dominion, would they not? You, his mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. The call to worship, the call to bless his name, the call to dedicate all that is within you to the worship and admiration, the extolling, ascribing to the Lord glories due. His name goes forth even to the angels in glory. 
Bless the Lord, all his hosts, which means multitudes, many ones, that too many to count. His ministers, similar word to angels, sometimes synonymous, who do his will. Bless the Lord, verse 22, all his works, his works, that which he has accomplished in history, according to his decree, perfectly in time, fulfilling his prophetic word, all of these things, join the voice of the redeemed soul, dedicating all that is within them to praise his holy name in all places of his dominion. Of his dominion, bless the Lord, O my soul. Kids, you want to play the stop game real quick? All right, so the key word is all. So you remember the rules. When you hear the word all, tell me to stop and let's count. In verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that, that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. You guys got that one? That's two. Who forgives all your iniquity. Number three. Who heals all your diseases. How many do we have so far? Very good. Now let's go to verse 21. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Very good. How many all do we have, kids? Seven. Now that's just to illustrate some repeated phrases in Psalm 103. I quoted from the beginning and at the end. And the point is, that all of our faculties ought to be directed to the Lord because of all that He has done. And all of His works ought to gather to praise Him because of how glorious He is. This is the universal call to worship. This is the cosmic call to worship. One of God's high and holy names is Yahweh Sabaoth. Yahweh Sabaoth, that means in the Hebrew, Lord of hosts. He is the one with the heavenly throne. One commentator says the following, His heavenly throne means that he, his throne is one of glory. His kingdom is one of a glorious reality. Secondly, it's one of dominion. Thirdly, supreme empire. Fourthly, particularity or peculiarity is specific. Fourthly, vastness. I've lost track now. An easiness to manage. So his glory, his dominion, his supremacy, the uniqueness, exclusiveness, the vastness, and how easy it is for him to manage all affairs. After all, he is seated in the heavens, as it were, is pictured by this idea, poetically, of his heavenly throne. Therefore, all creation is his train, if you will, that Isaiah sees. Another word for train is entourage. Isaiah 6, 1 through 3, what do the angels in the sanctuary presence sing nonstop? They sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Luke 2, 8 through 14, the shepherds join the voice of the hosts of heaven, that's the word used, who announce the birth of Jesus Christ. What is happening on the day that Jesus was born? A fulfillment of Psalm 103, verse 21, bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. A fulfillment of Psalm 103, 20, oh, you his angels, you mighty ones, you who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. And what do the... Uh, what do the shepherds do in like manner? After they go and visit the child, they proclaim this truth to others. They themselves also, in this regard, are fulfillment of Psalm 103. Now, in the close of our text, this song, David ends where he began. He has compiled this catalog of the manifest and magnified benefits of the Lord. And now he returns to his own soul and commands, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Just as he has stated in the introduction, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Have we not realized in Psalm 103 so many reasons to command the attention of all true believers? 
so many reasons to gather in this place? Do you hear the call from Psalm 103 to pay attention and to declare war on your own complacency and your own forgiveness, uh, forgetfulness, and to wage that war by taking seriously the revelation of God in His Holy Word? As you do so, may I suggest that your fear of Him will grow. As you do so, you will take more seriously His commands. As you do so, you will cling more tightly to His covenant. As you do so, you will look forward all week long, may I suggest, to join us in this place and waging war on our forgetfulness as we gather to remember His benefits. And let me close by saying, if there are any in the hearing of this word today, any unbelievers within the hearing of this message, you are now accountable for this truth. You have heard of the Lord and His great forgiveness that is available to you, but is available to you through one way, one truth, one life, Jesus Christ and Christ alone. So I command you by the word of Jesus Christ to bow before your Savior and Messiah and to confess your sins. That is the command of the gospel. All men must bow or else, but when they do, they join the glorious throngs who've gone before, the precious fellowship of the saints, the glorious family of God, and making it our combined goal to glorify Him in our midst so that less of the flesh uh, complicates and confuses and distracts and leads us into besetting sins and more and more of our faculties are directed to where they ought to be focused on the Lord and His power, His worthiness, His glories, His attributes, His holiness, and so forth. Let us close in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank You for the message of Your Scripture which is directed toward our souls as a sword that does necessary surgery, cutting away parts that have been infected by the flesh and the lingering effects of the fall, and restoring through us by the power of the Spirit's tool in His grasp a more clear view of who You are, that we might confess those faults and areas we fall short of Your glory, reject them and turn to You, our covenant head, O Jesus Christ. I pray that You would do this, Lord, through the proclamation of Your Word today, that you would perfect the profession of faith among your saints. And I pray that you would draw the lost unto salvation. Thank you, Lord, for the purity of your scriptures. Thank you for the power of the same. Thank you for the fulfillment of these words in time. And thank you for the miracle of every believer whose eyes have been opened by the touch of the Holy Spirit to its truths today. May May we be encouraged by these precepts proclaimed. And may we glorify you all the more this week in applying them for your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen.